Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. How far into the fog and lies of war will we go in Ukraine? I speak to John Jeter for this month's take on the media. This is a war of narratives, right? It's the United States trying to maintain some semblance of control by controlling the narrative. I don't think they're going to be able to do it, right? Because reality is very different from the narratives they're spinning. And students and activists rallying outside the White House say that announced loan debt relief is a good start, but more must be done. Education has been told to us to be the the great equalizer, the the opportunity for a better future. And for so many people who go to college and don't finish college, they are still saddled with that debt. For so many people who go to college, finish college, and are trying to get a good job, they're not able to do that, right? There's so many barriers within this world, and because of the place and time that we're at now, this was the moment to make it happen. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital for August 26th, 2022. I'm Esther Averam. Well, the plan announced by the Biden administration on Wednesday to relieve $10,000 in student debt relief for most borrowers and $20,000 for those who received a Pell Grant for low-income students is being greeted with hearty rounds of praise and scorn. On the plus side, according to White House figures, up to 27 million people will be eligible for the $20,000 in debt relief and Pell Grant recipients make up more than 60% of the borrower population. The Department of Education also says that the quote-unquote typical undergraduate student now graduates with nearly $25,000 in debt. On the negative side, that typical debt of $25,000 cited by the White House is much lower than the more often quoted figure from the Education Data Initiative. According to these researchers, the average federal student loan debt is more than $37,000, and the total average balance, including private loan debt, may be more than $40,000. Even though this debt relief is just a fraction of the $50,000 advocated for by progressive lawmakers, the White House is still facing harsh recrimination from Republicans but fought back with a series of tweets comparing the amounts these same lawmakers received in PPP loans that were forgiven during COVID. For example, Representative Vern Buchanan of Florida tried to rev up the cultural war nastiness with a story about how he worked his way through college, tweeting, quote, Biden's reckless unilateral student loan debt is unfair to the 87 percent of Americans without student loan debt, end quote. Responding on Twitter, the White House said, quote, Congressman Vern Buchanan had over $2.3 million in PPP loans forgiven, end quote, and added that for Representative Mike Kelly of Pennsylvania, it was nearly a million. The same for Representative Kevin Hart of Oklahoma. Congressman Matt Gates of Florida had nearly a half million dollars forgiven in these PPP loans. Activists rallying outside the White House on Thursday expressed praise for the debt relief as a first step, noting that it is a far cry from that 50000 in debt relief that would wipe out student debt for most Americans or solve the basic problem 
of why poor working class and middle class families must get into debt to get an education in the first place. Lydia Zajacek, a rising sophomore at the University of Wisconsin, was one of the speakers. Why are students choosing between their home and education? Why, when students graduated, they're awarded with a degree and $100,000 in debt? Biden's initiative is taking a step towards relieving students, but there are many initiatives on campuses that need to be resolved. Free tuition, affordable housing, food crises. Let's not end here with student loans. We can make college free for all. More voices from that rally after headlines. Also in front of the White House on Thursday, several immigrant rights organizations, part of the Stop Burks Coalition, rallied demanding the closure of an immigration customs enforcement detention facility outside Reading, Pennsylvania. And they want that building converted into a community center. And organizer Ashley read a translated statement for one of the immigrant organizers. We have been fighting for many years to close the detention center. The only thing it has achieved is to separate families. We feel that we have a prison in the courtyard of our house, or that I or any of us could be the one of those women separated from their children. These arrests are causing direct damage to individuals, their families and communities in general. We are here today so that Biden fulfills his promise not to separate families And while women are being detained, they are being separated from their families, they are suffering. Right now, we have an 18-year-old girl detained in that facility. What future awaits her? Our community needs rehabilitation services, a senior center, or a community college. Mr. President, we ask you to change the fate of these women and turn this detention center into a benefit and welfare center for our community now. Demonstrators who travel from Philadelphia for the rally said that they are advocating for freedom for all immigrants incarcerated by ICE, but especially for those in their region in Berks, Moshannon, Pike, and Clinton in Pennsylvania and in Elizabeth, New Jersey. A judge ordered the Justice Department on Thursday to make public a redacted version of the affidavit issued to search the Florida estate of former President Donald Trump to look for classified documents. According to the documents already released in the course of this investigation, the FBI retrieved from the property 11 sets of classified documents, including some marked at the top secret level. Legal experts expect that the affidavit will be heavily redacted to shield confidential information. And finally, in culture and media, there is one more day to act to those marked during Black August, the International Day for the Remembrance of the Slave Trade and its abolition was marked on August 23rd. According to the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, The day was first observed in 1998 to, quote, inscribe the tragedy of the slave trade in the memory of all peoples, end quote. Apparently unrelated, the White House issued a statement August 20th acknowledging a slavery remembrance day in the United States to coincide with the landing of 20 enslaved Africans in 1619 in Virginia. 
listeners to this show know, though, that the first enslaved Africans were brought by Spain nearly a century earlier in the early 1500s to what became the southern United States. And those are headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. Sabrina Calazans and I'm the student loan borrower and I'm the director of outreach at Student Debt Crisis Center. We're a grassroots nonprofit with about two million supporters nationwide and we advocate for borrowers by sharing their stories and making their voices heard. Every single day I speak to student loan borrowers and I listen to how student debt has impacted their lives. I think of borrowers like Casey from Arkansas whose husband is unable to work after COVID complications and now their budget is a little bit tighter. I think of Dara from Florida, whose life is on hold as she wonders if she's gonna be able to get married and buy a house with her partner. I think of Sharanda from Connecticut, who wasn't able to graduate with a degree, but who has tried paying off her student debt and faces an uphill battle. I think of Annie from Montana, whose daughter asked her to take out Parent PLUS loans for her, but because of her high debt burden, she said she could not. I think of Wilson from New York, who has to work multiple jobs just to be able to afford his rent and his student loan debt payments. I think of my own story as a daughter of Brazilian immigrants, and I come from a low-income, hardworking family with no generational wealth. I think about how student loan borrowers are everyday Americans. They're teachers, nurses, retail workers, therapists, warehouse workers, and so much more. But most importantly, they're also our parents, our grandparents, our children, our loved ones, and our neighbors. It might even be you. President Biden's decision yesterday to cancel student debt is a historic one for millions of borrowers and their loved ones. Yesterday, President Biden said, our approach to help Americans who need it the most is necessary, and we couldn't agree more. That's why we are here today to continue the fight. This is a good first step, but we know that this is a single battle won in the war against the student loan system. We must continue to fight for borrowers, but especially for borrowers of color, low-income borrowers, first-generation students, women, single parents, and all those who are disproportionately impacted by student loan debt. So today we celebrate, but tomorrow we organize. Today we celebrate another chance to pursue what is marketed as the American dream for many individuals and their families, but tomorrow we fight for college affordability and further reforms to this system. Today, we celebrate this cancellation decision, but tomorrow we continue to fight on behalf of millions of borrowers who still will be saddled with student loan debt. Today we celebrate, but tomorrow we regroup. Tomorrow we organize. Tomorrow we fight. We persevere and we will not give up. 
We won't give up because people should not be saddled with student debt for the rest of their lives. We don't give up because we have witnessed the power of a people-powered movement. And we don't give up because the most powerful tools that we have are our lived experiences and we must continue to share them. Let's keep sharing our stories. Let's keep fighting for one another until we cancel every single dollar of student loan debt. Thank you. Hello everyone, thank you for being here today. My name is Ebony Brown. I am here representing RISE as the Deputy State Director for Georgia, and I also attend uh, Morris Brown College in Atlanta. One in eight Americans are facing inescapable student loan debt due to high tuition costs, interest rates, low minimum wage, and inflation. The list truly does go on. The ability to repay has reached an all-time low. Over 50% of black student borrowers have reported that their net worth is less than what they owe in student loan debt. Black Americans are drowning in debt for the sake of a higher education and better income opportunities. Only to realize that same debt can affect your ability to purchase a home. Only to realize that same debt can affect your credit worthiness. Only to realize the, the one thing that we thought would catapult our social, economic, and financial status has put us at a disadvantage far greater than we could have ever imagined. And not only does it affect the borrower, but it also affects the co-signer, who nine times out of ten are parents, who face the same adversities, and that is a problem. Studies show that providing Americans with $50,000 will cast a net and be able to support 80% of Americans who are facing and who cannot repay their student loans. But today, I do stand here and I do say thank you to the Biden administration for canceling up to $20,000 for Pell Grant recipients such as myself. And although it's not the $50,000 that will cast that net, but it is a start and we do have more work to do. Canceling student debt is deeper than just signing a sheet of paper. It means investing in greater America. It means supporting your working class. It means promoting equity in minority communities. It means bridging the financial racial wealth gap in America. Once again, we do thank Biden for this start, but we are not finished. Thank you. Good afternoon, my name is Jalen Herbin and I serve as the policy and outreach manager for the Center for Responsible Lending. For about 10 years, we've heard that this is regressive. This is not gonna happen. What was a dream, a wish, turned into reality yesterday. Reality that brought forth a second chance, opportunity, hope, and ability to one day have their American dream. The American dream will not be right here in this White House, but it'll be able to own their own house, to be able to start their own family, to be able to have a small business. And that's what happened yesterday. So we commend President Biden and his administration for doing what was needed, what was right. Instead of waiting and just wanting to put it off, he did the right thing now. While it might not be what we wanted to see, it is a first step in changing our financial aid system. The Department of Education is the biggest predatory lending bank in the United States of America with over $1.9 trillion in student debt. That changed yesterday. There was opportunities for those to, get, to receive $10,000 of student debt cancellation and $20,000 if you receive a Pell Grant. That is monumental and that deserves a kudos to the President of the United States. But moving forward, we must make sure that our federal student aid system is fair and inclusive to borrowers of color. We know that black women hold $10,000 more of student debt than the average white male. 
We know that women hold two-thirds of the debt of student debt in the United States of America. That has to change. We need to make sure that we have a fair and inclusive public service loan forgiveness program and income-driven repayment program as well. So until we get that done, we will always continue to say, cancel the student debt, extend the payment pause, and cancel all of that debt. Thank you. Can we say it's not done until it's done? It's not done until it's done. All right, next up we have Lydia Zayacek from Rise. Hello everyone, I'm with Rise. We are students fighting for free college. Um, my name is Lydia Zaychek and I'm a rising sophomore at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. The decision to forgive a portion of student loan debt is a victory for so many. I remember sitting in my kitchen with my mom right behind me waiting to open my acceptance letter to UW-Madison. The emotions were filled with excitement but stress all in the same matter, knowing that even with in-state tuition, my parents nor I would be able to afford the price tag behind it. My parents have over $100,000 in student loan debt and no way could they assist me with my own costs. I worked so hard to make UW possible. I ended up staying late nights and applying to every scholarship under the moon. I didn't want this opportunity to go to waste. Lucky for me, I landed a scholarship where they would pay my tuition in full. Canceling student loan debt puts relief on working families like mine. While this is a great start and definitely worth celebrating, let's do more. Excitingly, in 2023, all UW system schools will offer free tuition to students and families who make under $60,000. This model should be expanded nationwide. Even with the relief of free tuition at my university, there are many other costs that students struggle with. For instance, I have personally experienced an affordable housing crisis. On my campus, housing is limited. I am a resident at the last UW housing cooperative, Zoe Bayless. This became particularly important in the wake of the university's decision to tear down my home for the new Letters and Science Academic Building. Students protested, raised money, and with all this wake, displaced residents had to find a new affordable home alone. But not everyone can win this battle alone. And affordable housing is a prevalent issue amongst colleges across America. Colleges center expanding athletics building new infrastructures, an expansion of programming, but none of this is touching the most vulnerable students. Why are students choosing between their home and education? Why, when students graduated, they're awarded with a degree and $100,000 in debt? Biden's initiative is taking a step towards relieving students, but there are many initiatives on campuses that need to be resolved. Free tuition, affordable housing, food crises. Let's not end here with student loans. We can make college free for all. We can award this opportunity to all students and family, but we, families, but we are simply choosing not to. As students, we have the power to take the next step by voting. And in November, let's all continue this energy to the polls because this is not a current student issue, but a family issue, a community issue. But lastly, it's a national issue. Thank you. That was Lydia Zayacek, a student at the University of Wisconsin and a member of the student and youth organization RISE. Before her, Jalen Herbin from the Center for Responsible Lending, Ebony Brown, Deputy State Director for RISE in Georgia and a student at Morris Brown College in Atlanta. And the first speaker was Sabrina Calazans, Director of Outreach for the Student Loan Crisis Center. 
All were rallying in front of the White House on Thursday, August 25th, 2022, to support forgiveness of student loan debt. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. And as the war of information and disinformation continues apace, we continue with our monthly expanded look at culture and media with John Jeter, former foreign bureau chief for the Washington Post, two-time Pulitzer finalist, and author of two books, including Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. He joins us from Limon, Costa Rica. Welcome back to the show, John. It's my pleasure, Esther. Well, John, as always, it seems like there is so much at the end of the month when we are planning this uh, segment. And this month we have attacks on journalists. We have just more glaring examples of the double standards in coverage. And then I guess resulting from that double standard, this continuing delusion about what is actually happening in the world. So we have a lot to cover, but we'll try to bring to light all these issues through the lens of media. So let's start with attacks on journalists. We have the assassination of Daria Dugina in Russia. She was a journalist and her father, Alexander Dugin, is a Russian philosopher who supports what is called in Russia the special military operation in Ukraine. The Western media makes it a point to call her a a disinformation journalist, but she is expressing facts on the ground and she sees it from from the perspective of a, a Russian. That is certainly at the top of the news. Earlier this month, we had the CIA and former CIA director Mike Pompeo sued for allegedly spying on attorneys as well as journalists who met with Assange, uh, Julian Assange, in the Ecuadorian embassy. And a number of continuing attacks on journalists, including Ben Norton and Aaron Maté. So where do you want to start this first segment on attacks on journalists? So I really see this as all part of a piece as the West is trying to sort of keep the genie in the bottle. This thing is really coming apart on all fronts now, political, economic, militarily in Ukraine. They're being challenged for their authority by China, by Russia. Uh, We see African nations that are increasingly drifting towards Russia, towards China, against the United States as we become more and more multipolar. And this is a war of narratives, right? It's the United States trying to maintain some semblance of control by controlling the narrative. I don't think they're going to be able to do it, right? Because reality is very different from the narratives they're spinning. And so if we just look at the language that they're using in this coverage of Dugin, right? I don't know much about him and his politics, but the idea that they they describe him as 
the mastermind behind Putin's um, invasion of Ukraine, which strikes me as utterly ridiculous. Putin is a very smart man, a former KGB agent, a man who I believe was in his 60s. It seems like he would have his own ideas about how to handle tensions with the West and with NATO. And these ideas about him being far right because he's a Russian, quote, exceptionalist. I think the Washington Post called him as opposed to an American exceptionalist, I, I imagine, which they don't seem to have any problem with. So it's, it's almost amusing if it weren't so foreboding, right? Like there's a sense of real dread here because you see them almost, you know, it's like the it's like the scene in The Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? They just don't seem to sort of be able to obscure the truth from the masses the way that the media was able to maybe 20, 25 years ago. There just seems to be a general understanding, I think, both in the United States and the world. Maybe less in the United States, but still I think people understand something is wrong, that the media is not telling them the truth. And if they don't quite know what the truth is, they know that the media is not sharing that with them. So it just strikes me as a sense of uh, foreboding about you know things to come. The coverage that I've read, especially in the Washington Post, seems to justify this assassination, this murder, because of the ideology, you know, saying, oh, this is why this happened. And also maybe taking glee or gloating over the fact that maybe this marks a new stage of the war in terms of terrorist attacks inside of Russia. They are willing to take the fight to Russia, you know, almost in a boastful sort of way. And this may be kind of boasting about without acknowledging how, how dangerous it is if you, you start to have these types of attacks happening on both sides. And there's no reporting on the fact that Daria Dugana's name was on this notorious so-called kill list on this Ukraine-sponsored website, Miro Voritz, I guess, that also lists 16 Americans, including journalists. I think we mentioned last week it includes the, the artist Roger Waters, who, who was touring around the country and he's not ashamed or shy about speaking about the Ukraine conflict as a proxy war with Russia and the history of U.S. involvement in Ukraine and supporting these neo-Nazis in Ukraine. And actually, on Thursday, 16 Americans presented a letter to Congress demanding some answers about why our tax dollars are going to support Ukrainian officials who are putting Americans on on this kill list and threatening the lives of Americans. And I think those Americans include, you know, former uh, CIA officer Ray McGovern, Scott Ritter, who's been a major thorn in the side of U.S. imperialism during this conflict in terms of his reporting and other journalists. You know, why our tax dollars are going to be to these Ukrainian officials putting Americans on a kill list, our tax dollars being paid their salaries. And by the way, they just voted themselves a salary raise recently with our tax dollars that are going there. And even to the point where they don't even want to acknowledge in terms of what makes sense that Ukraine is shelling a nuclear plant. So in a lot of the coverage of the Zaporizhia uh, nuclear plant, they typically say both sides accuse each other without acknowledging that what they're saying is that they're accusing Russia of shelling themselves because they are the ones that have been in control of this plant in this region for so long and not acknowledging that this region is being attacked by Ukraine because they plan on holding a referendum to leave Ukraine, basically. Right. Again, these this war of narratives, uh, if, if you listen closely, you will hear the media ape 
itself, really, when they talk about Russia shelling this nuclear plant, which is under their control. That's very much like their accusations against Assad uh, gassing his own territory, his own people. Like what maniac would do that? I, I think, you know, we, we might be able to ascribe some negative characteristics to both Assad and to Putin. They're not stupid men. And I don't understand why you would shell a nuclear plant that you control. And so, again, I think an act of desperation. And I, I didn't read all the coverage. You know, I just can't quite bear to sort of read everything that's written about the war in Ukraine, especially. But I've not once seen anyone refer to the attack, the, the assassination of this woman, this young woman, 29 years old, as either an act of terrorism or a war crime, uh, which it is both. And so, uh, and, and, and almost certainly uh, orchestrated by Ukraine, uh, which is losing this war badly. Everyone knows that, or everyone at least uh, outside of the Western media knows that uh, or admits it. If you just only have as your source, the Washington Post, the New York Times and NPR, you will not understand what's happening in Ukraine and really anywhere in the world. You'll understand the investment class's view of things, but you won't understand that there are opposing views that need to be considered if we're going to find solutions to our to the issues of excess. Right. So just a few points before we leave Ukraine, because I want to get to uh, Syria, which you just mentioned. We didn't have a chance to mention uh, last month that there was a German independent journalist, uh, Lena Lipp, and she is basically being criminalized by her journalism, repeating about Ukrainian war crimes in eastern Ukraine. And that's something that we actually don't hear about from European or U.S. corporate media. So the way we hear about the news here about Ukraine is that every attack is from Russia. You know, you, you never uh, until Amnesty International recently put out their report uh, talking about Ukraine committing war crimes by staging their military equipment in hospitals, schools, and these various locations. We never heard about any crimes or possible crimes by Ukraine from corporate media here. But this journalist, Alina Lip, was criminalized, basically saying that she she faces three years in prison if she returns to her home country because she's been reporting about the attacks by Ukraine in eastern Ukraine. And we know that these have been going on since 2014 and that the war did not start on February 24th. But the other point about Ukraine before we move on is that our friend Ben Norton at Multipolarista, he pointed out that he was being attacked by this uh, U.S. and European-funded think tank called the Institute for St Strategic Dialogue because he basically did factual journalism about NATO support for far-right extremists in Ukraine and the history of, say, U.S.-backed support for Nazis, starting with, you know, Operation Gladio and all those the Nazis brought to the U.S. after World War II. And basically, if you read the reports of a lot of these think tanks and some of the reports, even from journalists, who people who call themselves journalists, they're trying to basically wipe out this history, this factual history that happened. 
And I have to actually say, I, I had in this segment that I wanted to point out that I heard Ralph Nader on one of our Pacifica radio stations in D.C. talking about how Russia is losing the war. And, you know, because I listen to a lot of alternative media that is really reporting what is happening on the ground and showing the map of the vast territory that Russia has gained since February 24th, I was really taken aback by someone who is, you know, a very intelligent person, obviously just consuming Western corporate media and putting out this line on a Pacifica radio station. I was like, wow. But I guess, you know, that is what is still being spewed uh, to the American people to justify these continued weapon sales. You know, I think we're past $80 billion now, right? But I wanted us to turn real quickly to another piece that we didn't get a chance to uh, cover. And this is the piece run in The Guardian. And initially... Initially, the piece said Russia-backed network of Syria conspiracy theorists identified, uh, written by a Mark Townsend. And then as they subsequently edited it, it just said network of Syria conspiracy theorists identified because they realized that they had no no evidence that these people were Russian-backed. And they attack, they do a lot to attack Aaron Mate of the Pushback podcast And so uh, he was able to call the author, Mark Townsend, of this article. And, well, I should say first that the article is based on a report uh, put out by the U.S. state-funded Institute for Strategic Dialogue and the Syria Campaign. And they say in the article that um, Aaron Maté is the, quote, most prolific spreader of disinformation, end quote, about Syria. So uh, Maté called the Guardian reporter Mark Townsend to challenge him on the article. And so this is a little piece of audio from Maté challenging him about his journalism and reporting in this article. I'm going to play that and then you can react. I'm asking you, why didn't you contact me before writing such a consequential claim about me? It's pretty simple. Why not? As I said, you get an email. Do you think it's fair journalism? You should, you should have got it already. No, I haven't gotten it. It's been over a week. So I'm calling you, you now. Should, you should be writing very short. So, Mark, let, I, I, let me ask you, can you name me right now? Can you, Mark, 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 can you name for me a single piece of this information that I've spread on Sierra? Can you do it right now? Can you name for me... Can you name for me? Go ahead. I've got a meeting. Uh, sure, right. An email should be arriving soon. You respond. Mark, can you identify a single piece of disinformation that I've spread on Syria? Okay, don't. You can't. Look, I've got a task this meeting. This email will be completely explanatory. So, sorry, Mark, you you took the time to write a whole article about me. Can you not answer a couple of questions? Just give me a straight answer. Well, you called me the leading purveyor of disinformation. That was in report. It was in a report that you didn't. And by the way, can you also explain why you didn't include in your article that the report is funded by states that are actually belligerent in the topic you're writing about, which is Syria? Why not mention that? Okay, so that's Aaron Mate in a phone call with Mark Townsend, the author of that piece in The Guardian. And he broadcast that on his podcast, The Pushback. And uh, so as he said in the piece, you know, no one from The Guardian can name any disinformation that he 
you know, disseminated. The reader's editor contacted him after that conversation and said that they should have contacted Aaron Maté first. They then edited a statement they published in The Guardian from Aaron, and they took out all the references uh, Aaron made to the OPCW scandal, where the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons covered up its own investigation when that investigation found no evidence of a chemical attack in Duma, Syria, in April of 2018. And we know that the allegations of this alleged attack uh, by Assad was the basis for the U.S., Britain and France bombing Syria that same month. And anyway, in the investigation, the, the leaks from the actual scientists at the OPCW showed that evidence of this incident being staged. So this is an ongoing story. And it's so related to what we're talking about in Ukraine, because, you know, the white helmets, they were working alongside radicals, you know, fighting Syria and uh, creating videos and creating these kinds of false flags. But anyway, the white helmets supposedly are in Ukraine now. And we know it's basically an information production team or um, that they know how to stage events and propagandists. Yeah, propagandists and uh, take pictures and create videos that create a narrative. Um, they, they construct narratives about war zones. Yeah, and uh, yes, and especially by The Guardian, which really used to be 20 years ago. Uh, and I remember specifically when I was uh, in Southern Africa and covering Zimbabwe and the political unrest there. And The Guardian was really, I thought, um, I thought The Guardian as being my main competition. They really broke really good stories, did some really good journalism which was, you know, mostly attri- attributable to one particular reporter, but it was it was the entire newspaper that was a pretty just some pretty robust journalism, and to see it in its current state of affairs, it's just really very it's heartbreaking, really, because we have so few resources in the mainstream, especially that does useful journalism, and so yeah, the Guardian's decline is one. I wish someone would sort of interrogate it. What's happened to the Guardian, as well as you know, you had mentioned Ralph Nader. I you know I just I don't. I don't have the time, and I probably don't have the resources to do it uh, in terms of of, of uh, contacts. But you know, Ralph Nader has always been a very problematic man in terms of his politics. On the one hand, he is probably the most effective consumer advocate in U.S. history. But on the other hand, his politics are really very shallow, and you know, you never really sort of can predict which way he will go. I mean, he has some really troubling views on his black support when he ran for president in, was it 2000? And, uh, I, you know, it's just very, it's tragic, really. You know, we, we, we these two resources that average people, ordinary people should have, uh, and they're really lost to us, The Guardian and people like Ralph Nader, who should be a much more forceful ally. Uh, for the people and really just fall very short of their potential. Wow. I'm Esther Averam in conversation with John Jeter. We'll be right back. Amina Alada Akta. I'm the one dreaming beautifully. Amina Alada Akta. Amina Alada Akta. I too dream things beautiful. Amina Alada Akta. I too dream. We 
This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. In conversation with John Jeter for this month's extended segment on culture and media. And John, before the break, we were talking about attacks on journalists and all the ways that that's continuing, especially around the war in Ukraine, the continuing disinformation about what happened in Syria. You know, we also could have included in that segment the attacks on the Uhuru movement because the African People's Socialist Party had uh, a radio station in St. Petersburg, which was attacked on that same day that the chairman of the party, Omali Eshetela, had his home raided in, in St. Louis and the properties of allies and those in solidarity with the Uhuru movement were also raided. We aired uh, Eshetela's commentary just after the attack. And this week, Eshetela was interviewed on what's at stake on WPFW Pacifica Radio in Washington, D.C. And he told the activist Marsha Coleman Adebayo some of the horrific things that happened that day. Suddenly, we heard these explosions going off around the house. And we were to learn later that uh, it actually happened in the back stairwell of the house as well. So these flash bang grenades were going off everywhere. So I asked my wife to wait until I would let me go downstairs first. And she should get on the phone to call people uh, to let them know that we're being raided. And they had begun to identify themselves as the FBI. So I went downstairs uh, and opened, uh, there's a narrow sort of hallway. uh, And I went down uh, stairway, I went downstairs, opened the door. Flashbang grenades were going off at the same time, but these uh, laser darts from automatic weapons were, were lots of them on my chest. And I, I could see this armored vehicle in front of the house, and I could see uh, these armed men and women uh, with flag jackets on and camouflaged uh, outfits, and this voice telling me to move toward, uh, toward them, to follow, come this way, come this way. Flashbang grenades going off at the same time. So when I get uh, to where the voice is located, they zip tie me behind my back. And then my wife, uh, she's coming down. Uh, I would learn that a a drone had almost hit her in the face going up the stairwell into the house. So they send a drone into the house. And then she gets downstairs. They handcuff her behind her back. And they want us to sit on the curb. The typical kind of humiliating thing that you see happening to African people uh, all the time. And we wouldn't do that, so they said, well, sit in the back. You can sit in the back of your car. We don't want to sit anywhere. We want to leave here. We don't know why you're here, what's going on. And so they eventually said that uh, we're here because we have a warrant to search your house. Well, search my house for what? Where's the warrant? Let me see the warrant. And uh, they said, well, we don't have it right now. It's somewhere in the vicinity. You know, you'll get it. And so that was... Omali Ashatella speaking on WPFW Pacifica Radio on August 24th. Thinking about the coverage of the African Socialist People's Party, I couldn't help but think about it in comparison to the right wing uproar over the wasn't really a, the what happened to the to the Socialist People's Party was a raid. But what happened to the former President Trump's property in Mar-a-Lago was more of a, a search warrant being executed. And when you think about the violence uh, connected to both events, what's your, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, no, I think so. I think the particularly the African Socialist People's Party, the the raid on their properties in St. Petersburg and in St. Louis really reminded me very much of the Red Scare of 1919 and the, the Palmer raids, which were the FBI raids led by the attorney general at the time. And also that coincided with Red Summer, which were the attacks on blacks, particularly black workers. It reminds me that we're doing the same thing again, right? We are. Uh, that was the beginning of the industrial era. We're now at the end of the industrial era, a century later. And we end just as we began, which is on these attacks on the most radical thinkers, people who probably can lead us to our solutions best. You know, on the one hand, um, black socialist. On the other hand, Donald Trump's not going to lead us anywhere. But, but, but by the same token, he is seen as an ally of Russia, Right. Which is what many of the, the people who were raided in the Palmer raids were seen as communist. And uh, they were many of them were communist, communist, anarchist and uh, allies of, of the Bolshevik revolution. So it's just, you know, I don't think Mark Twain got much wrong, but I do think one thing he got wrong was when he said history doesn't repeat itself. But it sure does rhyme. No, it repeats itself. It, it almost is identical. Right. And that reminds me to include in that repetition of history, this continuing, you know, assault and terrorism of black communities by police. I thought it received very minimal coverage for the scope of this horrific situation. You know, but earlier this month, black residents of Lexington, Mississippi, filed a federal lawsuit against the municipality, its police department and current and former police officials, including an ex-police chief, Sam Dobbins, who was fired for boasting about shooting a black man 119 times. We reported on this case last week and that the lawsuit filed by the civil rights group Julian in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Mississippi says that black residents are terrorized by a pattern of excessive force, intimidation and false arrests that have made many residents afraid to leave their homes. And so residents are calling for the U.S. Department of Justice to investigate the town and told reporters that though fired, this former police chief, Sam Dobbins, is still riding around in taxpayer funded patrol cars with on duty police officers. And I think that the uh, Mississippi uh, Center for Investigative Reporting did an excellent in-depth job talking about the record of Dobbins before he even came to Lexington, Mississippi, and how he was involved in several other uh, cases of abuse and even uh, the deaths of other black people. He had even boasted of killing several people in uh, Lexington. So that is a case that we have to watch, especially as the memory of the 2020 uprising against racism starts to fade in people's memory. And you even hear some of these right wing commentators calling those things riots as if they came out of nowhere and as if they were just senseless riots and not out of the, the anger and the, the outrage over this, these continuing police murders. And I also relate that to how the war in Ukraine has uh, highlighted the double standards and the hypocrisy in terms of how international wars and and uh, these massacres are covered. Earlier this month, you know, Israel launched these attacks on Gaza, killing at least 45 people, including at least 16 children. The continued attacks on children uh, and uh, the arrests and imprisonment of children, uh, Palestinian children. And 
it showed to the world uh, the double standard in terms of what people that the U.S. will continue to be under assault, right? They, you know, we still see appeals on TV to raise money for children in Ukraine. And it, it you know, on uh, last week's show, I talked about the fourth year anniversary of the Saudi bombing of a uh, school bus of Yemeni children. And so it's just drawing into sharp relief, the hypocrisy. And when you talk about a war like Yemen, where the U.S. is backing Saudi Arabia, the, the criminal complicity of the U.S. and other European governments in waging war continually against largely the global South while uh, waving, I guess, this uh, flag of righteousness around um, supporting Ukraine. You know, the two words that you almost, uh, well, no, not almost, you never hear in the mainstream Western media are settler colonialism. And those two words are very telling because you really can't understand anything about the last uh, 200 years in terms of geopolitical occurrences. You can't understand anything without understanding the history of settler colonialism, right? It's all tied to this system of dispossession uh, to the benefit of European settlers, uh, around the world. And, and that system is falling apart now. And yet you don't hear, you never hear those two words, settler colonialism. That's what the United States is. Uh, that's what France has done. That's what the, the Brits have done. And that system is beginning to unravel. And you will never hear that. For, well, maybe you will someday because it becomes just so inevitable that they actually have to utter the words. But heretofore, we have not heard any analysis that contains uh, that phrase, settler colonialism. Right. And I suppose it might be fitting to also include or to wind up this particular piece on double standards and talking about the firing of Brian Stelter and the end of his program, Reliable Sources on CNN. He he had his last program on Sunday. That would have been the August 21st. I also tried to follow some of the criticism of his show from the left. And he, for example, never in a show called Reliable Sources, never went to bat for Julian Assange, would go on the attack on independent journalists if they didn't follow the kind of neoliberal, whatever the neoliberal talking points were at the moment, you know, in cases like Syria, in cases like Ukraine, right? So the reliable sources that he touted weren't often the the same as kind of truthful sources. It was like, what is reliable? And it was kind of caught up in this netherworld we're walking around in where, you know, people are constantly fed this diet of lies and half truths. And that's why Americans, most Americans don't really know what's happening in the world. Yeah, I, I think of Stelter. Yeah, I think of him the same way I think of someone like Chuck Todd, I think, who's at M, uh, NBC try to listen to them and they just become, they sound like all the adults in the Charlie Brown cartoons, right? It just doesn't, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. And so I, he's just one of those people I just kind of tune out. I, I'll be switching flipping channels and I come across him and it just becomes his background noise. I, I, it's gibberish. I can't make any sense of it. It just doesn't, it's not useful. Uh, it's got this myopic view of politics and uh uh, almost no understanding of history. And yeah, I, you know, it, it, I'm sure they'll replace him with someone else who's just as useless, but, you know, good riddance. I'm glad he's gone. Um, it'd be interesting to see if someone like that, 
you know, lands another gig with another network or, or, or cable station. But uh, it's, it speaks so poorly of journalism as the fifth estate as any kind of check on, on power or any kind of pillar of democracy that someone like him was, uh, you know, employed by um, the, 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 the uh, original, you know, cable news network. Well, we're going to have to end it. But, you know, uh, we try to do some culture in our segments. And I know that we're we're, you know, rapidly running out of time. But if I have a chance, I want to play a little piece of a celebration of life uh, given uh, for Greg Tate, uh, writer, musician, uh, thinker, um, and recently uh, giving in 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 New York. So uh, hopefully I'll have a chance to play that. Um, But um, I want to uh, thank my guest, John Jeter, our media critic, uh, former foreign bureau chief for the Washington Post, uh, two-time Pillager finalist and author of two books, including Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. Thank you, John. Thank you, Esther. will be the last words on today's show performers at the august 20th new york tribute to the late great writer thinker musician and band leader greg tate who moved to washington dc as a teenager and graduated from howard university he joined his ancestors on december 7th 2021 at the age of 64 This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Averam, and our website is onthegroundshow.org. In addition to communicating with us on our website, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and on patreon.com at On the Ground Show, all of which have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. Or I also link to every show on my Instagram page at Esther underscore Ivera. The other music we played this hour included Leroy and Lanisha by Kamasi Washington, Shalala by the Ether Orchestra, Things Beautiful by Navasha Dea, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivera. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace.
On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show. If you have not already subscribed at Patreon, you can do so for as little as $3 a month or all at once at $33 for the whole year. If you like the show, if you love the show, if you regularly check it out, if you rely on it, if, you know, it's a part of your soundtrack in any kind of way, please support. Go to patreon.com forward slash on the ground show, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can go to the show website, which you might go to anyway, on thegroundshow.org. And you click on the support donate button and you can see all ways to give.